Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. All right. Hello, hello, everyone. Today is the 2nd of September 2021. Time goes by quickly. And today I have the pleasure of a very interesting guest who I met many years ago and really excited to talk to. Uh, and I'm hopefully going to pronounce her name correctly, Noor Swide. That's perfect. Close, Thanks, close enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and Noor, uh, are you joining us from Dubai? I am. I'm in Dubai right now. Great, great. So Noor Swide joining us from Dubai, who is the founder of Global Ventures, uh, which is, I think, one of the most interesting venture capital firms I have come across. So Noor, welcome to the Reorient podcast. Thank you, Jesse, for having me and, um, and for giving us the opportunity to share what we're working on here out of Dubai. Well, you have a great story, and I'm looking forward to delving into it. So before we go into what sort of the Global Ventures does and what your work is there, give us a little bit of sense. You have a very interesting personal story. So let us know a little bit about your journey of of how you came to become a a venture capitalist uh, sitting in Dubai. What was your journey to this, this point? Um, so I, I don't know where to start except right at the beginning. <laughs> so exactly. I grew up in a bunch of different countries. Um, I was born in Boston, raised in London. We moved to Saudi Arabia when I was 12. We moved to Dubai when I was 15. I, I then went back to Boston for college. Um, I studied. I worked at Accenture for a while as a consultant in biotech and pharma. Um, and then I did my MBA and, and all the meantime staying in Boston. Came back to Dubai in 2005, where my family had remained since I had gone off um, to do my studies, and um, came back as a consultant with Booz Allen. And then between my first and second projects, kind of had three weeks, as consultants do, um, to to relax or recover, depending on how you see it, and just kind of zone in on, on home turf rather than continuing to travel every week. And in those three weeks, I, I worked for a little bit with my father. And a company he was building. The three weeks turned to three months. Over the subsequent three years, we grew the company, which was an interior contractor from about 16 million top line, 600 million, from 1,000 people to 9,500 across 22 markets, becoming the largest in the world in our space. And the learning there was you can build the largest in the world in a vertical from anywhere, including Dubai. In April 08, um, I ran the IPO for the business, which was fantastic. It was one of the first out of the region to list internationally. Um, we listed on the main board in London um, and the NASDAQ Dubai as well. And then I continued with the company for five more years until 2013. At the same time, I had started a side project in early 2006. I had started a yoga studio in Dubai. So I had become a big avid yogi since the year 2000 when I was living in Boston. And when there was a one or two studios in Boston, by the time I left in 05, there were at least 20. Um, so coming to Dubai and yoga still hadn't really existed here, started a studio, brought two teachers over from the U.S. Um, that were keen to, to explore. And they came for two years. Um, which obviously then turned out to be much longer because then yoga went from being kind of my, my weekend project into a proper yoga chain into a large wellness chain 
and I sold that to a private equity firm. My learning there was it's so hard to be an entrepreneur. And so I went back to, wait, I'm, I have this, you know, we had 72 teachers, 6,000 students a month and so on. But, you know, when I would, I would look back on my day and I'd say, wow, the hardest part of my day was dealing with these yoga studios, not running a billion dollar company. Right. And 12, 13 years ago, a billion dollar company was very large. It wasn't a unicorn, you know, in a month um, like the, these days. And so that learning then took me to how can I work more with entrepreneurs? Because if it's that hard and I'm so blessed and fortunate that um, that I also had the experience of running this large company and all these all this expertise in other areas, let me help others figure it out as well. And so I became an angel investor because that's all I could do at the time. And then these young angel investments, these companies started to scale, you know, they needed scale. I'm not that scalable and, and figured, you know, let me, let me think about this and do this well. I had had these two exits done and started just investing a little bit and then looking at venture. And it just seemed to me that venture just didn't exist in the region. There was a few firms, like three or four, but nowhere near what we needed. I'm very data driven. So once I started taking a look at the data, I realized that we invest as a region 0.02% of our GDP in venture. The U.S. is at 0.7 to 35 times more. And so those numbers just were staggering to me. And then as I looked and I had this moment of what am I doing with my life? I want to do something that's meaningful and so on. It really hit me that the most meaningful moment in my life was when we were writing the prospectus and we were looking at the job growth. And so I said, okay, wow, the job growth from 1,000 to 9,500 people in three years was amazing. How do we replicate that in a sustainable, scalable fashion? So then I started doing research around, well, you know, what, what stimulates job growth? And in America, in the U.S., VC-backed companies create 2.8 times as many jobs as non-VC-backed companies. So I said, okay, well, then the obvious solution is if you want to scale the concept of job growth, you don't go start one company, you enable many. And then in that learning, I said, okay, um, and job growth, for those who are familiar with emerging markets, our markets sit at 40% unemployment. That's four zero, not one four. And, and that's particularly in the youth segment, so the under 35s, and that's half our population. So you take a look at the one and a half billion people we have here. Half of them are under 30 or 35, depending which year you look at. And 40% are unemployed. So if you have a job, your brother or sister doesn't. And so if you really want to start affecting unemployment and creating these jobs, then venture is probably the right way to do it. And given that there's no VC funding and no access to capital for founders, I'm like, that's a problem I want to tackle. So I, I don't come to venture from, I want to be an investor. I come to venture from, I'm an entrepreneur that wants to solve a problem that I believe is worth solving. And here I'll put a little dent in this massive unemployment problem by being a VC, because I believe that given my experience and given my background, I can probably pick the companies that have mission-driven founders, but at the same time will create these incredible returns. And so that's how I got into venture. I took a sidestep for two years into government and served as a CIO at Dubai Future Foundation, which is kind of Dubai's mission. How do you go from a tourism hub to an innovation hub and how do you invest in startups? And then um, almost four years ago, I left that role to start my own firm. Um, so started Global Ventures really as I can, you know, I have in the past helped build a global company out of the region. And if you can do that for interior contracting, which is boots on the ground, and you're actually building out interiors of hotels and, and airports and infrastructure, then you can do it for tech, right? Like it's actually, it should be much easier. Um, and so really it's about global thinking, network, scalability. 
Um, and so, and hence global ventures. It's not that we invest globally, we invest in the Middle East and Africa. It's that we want our invested ventures to become global. Um, and so starting global ventures with this, you know, relatively crazy idea of we're going to build, we're going to help build global companies from the region. At the same time, we're going to tackle unemployment and take a look at five UN SDGs. So on the impact that we align with. But we're SDG being what exactly? Sustainable Development Goals. Okay. So the UN many years ago, all the countries got together and said, "Where does the world want to be by 2030 and 2025?" And they built. They have 17 different goals, things like education, unemployment, access to water, and so on, and environments, and so on. And so the world, including like my children, will tell you exactly what those 17 SDGs are because. We're teaching young children these things these mm-hmm. days. Um, and most investment firms around the world in emerging markets will say there's one or two that we're aligned with. Um, and they're usually environment or governance. In our part of the world, we've decided this job growth, financial inclusion, healthcare inclusion. So things that are much more, you know, they're often seen as basic human rights. But in our part of the world, the vast majority of people don't have access. And so we figured, let's run a venture capital fund and create the great returns that, that we expect of VC funds, but at the same time, try to touch people's lives. Well, that's a phenomenal uh, introduction. And I know at each part that you mentioned, we could go in many levels deeper uh, into the granularity, but that's a great overview. And I should add for our audience, I mean, Global Ventures now, I don't know if this is the latest data, but it has really grown since I think you established around five years ago and you have, uh, I think, over 20 uh, employees and you're operating in six countries and at least 24 portfolio companies. So you've really scaled into uh, a very significantly sized venture capital firm in the region. You mentioned sort of mission-driven and and really trying to address the problem of unemployment and and sort of basic needs. It makes me think of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Is that that sort of a fair way to sort of look at it and say, listen, before we get into this highfalutin, touchy-feely stuff, let's solve people's real day-to-day problems. Is that that a fair way of of describing it? You know, I think so. And and for me, it's a chicken or egg problem, right? So what's the point in fixing healthcare and financial inclusion? if the environment collapses and the planet doesn't exist. At the same time, what's the point in making the planet exist and the environment is at all great if people don't have access to like a piece of bread every day or a job or, you know, or a doctor when they're really sick. So, you know, it's really, it depends where you sit in the world. We happen to sit in the middle of a market where four years ago we had 85% of the populations unbanked. Now we're at 55%. And so you can prove that fintech actually enables financial inclusion, right? And so we're backing those companies that when they come in, they're tech companies through and through. But if they succeed, you're going to impact hundreds of millions of lives. I got it. So we're talking about real impact. So before we get into the sort of types of investing investments you make and, and that you look at and what's happening in venture capital, let's just first define the region. So I think uh, it's MENA, Middle East and North Africa, or is that not correct? You're looking yeah. at all of Africa. Yes. So, so we, we've invested in Nigeria. We've done a few investments in Nigeria. We've invested in Kenya. For us, Africa is is very similar to North Africa. Imagine that. Except some of the needs are more dire. Mm, okay. Regulators are more flexible. And so technology is able to innovate more quickly. 
Okay, so we're talking about a very large, I mean, it's almost hard to call it a region, right? I mean, you have Middle East and this continent of Africa. I mean, that's, that's a lot of geography, but do you view that as a cohesive region or would you more say you're basically, you're looking at two continents or I don't know, continent and a half. And, and so you're this, you know, however many countries that you're talking about the population. It's- it's absolutely cohesive and we've seen it. So our portfolios grow from one to the other. I wouldn't say seamlessly, but very easily. Um, I'll give you a great example. So one of our companies in Nigeria is called Helium Health. It's an EMR, an electronic medical record system for hospitals. So 30% of hospital visits in Africa are documented, right? That's sub-Saharan Africa. Go slightly north, fantastic. Now it's 45%. Come into Jordan and rural parts of Saudi Arabia, you might be at 60%. The problem still exists and still needs to be solved, but it's not as dire, right? And so these solutions like M-Pesa, how that came out of Kenya, right? So these solutions will come out of areas where the most dire anywhere is at 30%. But now Helium's expanded into the Gulf, expanded from the East because they're solving a real problem using up-to-date technology, cloud-based solutions. It's an offline first solution because that's what works in emerging markets. It's a fully integrated with the regulator and patient and doctor, right? So you take a look at Helium as just one example of, yes, it's a solution, Y Combinator founders. And when we syndicated the deal, we did it with Tencent and AIC out of Japan. So it's really the international community realizes that they're solving a real problem that is global. It just happens to come out of Africa because the need is so dire. Okay. So um, when we're talking about uh, sort of Middle East and Africa, you know, we're probably looking at over, you know, 70 countries, uh, one and a half billion people, you know, a lot of diversity, clearly, including the level of development, which you just touched on. So just sort of just before we get drilled down, what's the sort of common factor that in terms of how you're saying we're, we're looking at these markets, what's sort of tying them together? Is it basically that they all have basic needs that need to, that can be filled and met through the venture capital process? Is that, or is there something? So they else? all have the same demographics mm-hmm. where half your population is under 30. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. They all have super high mobile penetration. And so you're north of 80, 90% mobile penetration, but yet low financial inclusion, low healthcare access, right? As in, if you need to see a doctor, that is a very, very big problem. It's not about, oh, we're improving quality of care. No, there is no care, right? So you're going from no doctor to teledoctor, just like we went from cash and coin to digital wallets. We fix financial inclusion, not by building banks. We're going to fix healthcare inclusion, not by building hospitals. And I'll give you like the numbers are the same. So in sub-Saharan Africa, you have about 0.5 doctors per thousand people. In North Africa, you're at 0.8. In parts of the Middle East, you're at 1.2. You go to the U.S., you're at four and a half, right? So again, it's incrementally different, but it's dire. So those, the commonality is the needs of these basic things, the populated the demographic, the mobile penetration and the unemployment. Okay, fantastic. So, I mean, one of the things I think that makes what you're doing so interesting in how venture capital in your, I don't want to call it region, I think it's regions. Uh, anyway, I'll, we could call it region. Venture capital in your region differs from, say, the United States of Europe is the impact it has on people's day-to-day lives. Um, I mean, if we had to generalize a lot of venture capital, 
in sort of the developed world is aimed at sort of improving efficiencies, maybe making something you know more convenient for a consumer to save time. A lot of it might be aimed at, at sort of business. And so it's hard to say that those, you know, in terms of impact, really, uh, you know, enhance the quality of life for the people. Whereas what you're doing, and you mentioned sort of telemedicine or, or doctors using tech, leveraging technology to improve healthcare, that's really impacting at a very deep and fundamental level the, the lives of people in those markets. Yeah. And we, and it's, you know, not just the telemedicine, but one of the companies in our portfolio that's also done very well is an augmented reality for virtual surgery. So you can stream in a specialist surgeon from, for example, Cleveland Clinic, which they've done into Afghanistan. Mm. Right. So this was a, a female founder. She was a surgeon living in Beirut, working on, you know, with children and hospitals and realizing, I wish I could get to more places faster. Fast forward several years. She now has a contract with J&J, working with Teladoc, working with the NHS in the UK, because also the discrepancy between, let's say, uh, rural America or rural UK and a Boston or San Francisco or London in terms of quality of care, you know, the chance of fatality and complication in some surgeries is 3x. So she went out to serve emerging markets, our part of the world, um, and that's where she started. That's where she's still serving as a technology but because it's built for emerging markets with the low latency and the rest of it, it can then easily crack global markets back to our it's regional founders solving regional problems that are much more dire, but they're actually global problems a little bit. But regionally, she's saving lives. She's not improving the quality and reducing complications. She is actually saving lives. They've done about now 9,000 surgeries on this platform globally. And so it's fantastic. It's called Proximy. It's one of my favorite companies and stellar founder. So yes, that changes life. So when we take a look at our portfolio across the board, the companies have created 6,800 jobs, all high quality jobs. They have financially included over 25 million people who without these companies would not have access to, for example, send money home to a parent or pay some, or digital finance, which is super important in these markets, especially for females. And then on the healthcare side, we have healthcare inclusion now for 13 million people. So some of the companies we invested in when they were very young had maybe, you know, a thousand teleconsultations a month. Now they have 300,000 teleconsultations a month. And those teleconsultations aren't, oh, I get to speak to a doctor sooner. It's, I would have had to travel three days in order to go see a doctor that I could not afford. And now I can actually just see a doctor virtually. Yeah, um, I noticed amongst your portfolio companies, I mean, um, obviously if some that look you know, similar to companies we might see or hear about in you know, in the West developed, but also ones that are really targeting specific needs of that region. And I uh, one that I one that sort of struck me was this Red Sea Farms, which seems to basically be addressing the problem of of lack of arable land, lack of potable water, um, and that really impacts the availability of, of food and uh, presumably you know high quality locally sourced food. So, can you tell us a little bit about uh, Red Sea Farms and, and how scalable that model is? So, Red Sea Farms um, is a product of R and D in Saudi Arabia, which people often might argue is scarce. Um, and their patents actually in the ability to reduce the consumption of electricity and desalinating water so that you can use it in these vertical farms and other agri-products by about 
And so it's as much food security as it is environment because you're reducing the energy consumption. So this is massively scalable. They're now serving. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.